So in this episode today, yeah, Kimberly's here. Yeah. Oh, she is. I think it's you. Whoa, it is me. Cool. <laughs> it is you. And we have kind of a neat interview that I'm excited about. Ooh, tell us, tell us. Well, I think you already know, Kimberly, but- Well, I do, but tell us the royal we. The royal we. We are interviewing Amy Schneider. She is a current Jeopardy champion. She also happens to be transgender. I love that. I love that too. It's nice to see an openly trans person with some national and international media exposure. This is going to be really exciting. I know. I was so excited. I reached out via Facebook and she actually was like, okay, sure. I'll be on your show. Couldn't believe it. So she was reproachable. Yeah. And then Kimberly agreed to join us today. The stars aligned. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about this interview. So why don't we take a quick commercial break and get into it when we get back? Make it quick. Snappy, snappy. All right. Be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. Uh, But you know what? We don't have our regular ex-Mormon. Yeah, she's not here today. Co-host today. But Kimberly can definitely fit the bill because Kimberly is with us and she is ex-Mormon. Yep. Still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Still trying to figure that out. So that introduction still works. So I am Mary. I'm Kimberly. We have Kimberly with us, and our special guest today is Amy Schneider. So Amy Schneider is a 13-time champion on Jeopardy and going strong. <laughs> I know. I, I want to sing the theme music, but I, I worry that it's a copyright infringement <laughs> issue. Maybe yes. we can like put some crowd <laughs> cheering in right there. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? Uh, I also toyed with the idea of getting Amy to try to answer all of these responses in the form of a question. I thought that would be challenging. Yeah. (laughs) Amy, welcome to our show. So happy to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. First of all, I was asking Kimberly, because Kimberly has known some friends who have been on Jeopardy, Mm -hmm. or at least known some people. What's the process like to get on Jeopardy? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's changed some over the years, but but these days the process is you go to their website and find where you can take the test. And so it's an online test. Uh, there's 50 questions and you have 15 seconds, I believe, to respond to each of them. And then basically uh, everybody who scores over a certain number on that quiz and they don't reveal what that number is, uh, out of those people, they will select a random selection and those will get invited to the next stage. Uh, the next stage is, quote, in-person audition. Obviously, it hasn't actually been in person for a couple years, although I'm sure that as soon as they can, they will get back to that. But for the time being, it's it's on Zoom. Basically, there's, there's two parts to that. One is essentially another 50-question test, which I believe is essentially just making sure you weren't cheating on the first one. The second part is basically running with you through some sort of mock um, games and sort of talking with you a bit, seeing like, you know, are you, you know, perky and cheerful on camera? Do you, you know, make good television? Um, And I think one of the biggest things they're looking for is, are you quick? Like after you ring in and give your response, do you immediately go to the next category and, and dollar amount? Because... That's one of the big things for them. They want to get through all 60 clues in every game. And I think I read somewhere it's something like 12 seconds per clue, like question and answer is the time they're trying to hit with that. Wow, they haven't broken down that much then. Yeah. So, wow. you know, I think that's that's definitely one of the main things they're looking for. They don't want somebody who's going to go, uh, geography. They want somebody who's going to be geography for 200 and, you know, keep it moving. Mm-hmm. And then so once you've done that, they won't tell you how you did. They'll just say, OK, everybody here, you're now in the active pool of candidates. And sometime in the next 18 months, either you will get a call from us saying that you're on the show or you won't. And mm-hmm. at that point, you just have to start the process again. Wow. So how long did it take for you to actually get the spot on the show? Somewhere over 13 years, because I I know that I I remember trying out when I was still in Ohio and I moved to California in 2009. So that puts like a minimum amount of time I've been doing it. I got to that last stage of being in the active pool, I think three, either two or three times before this one that, that finally ended with me actually getting the call to do it. And then in my case, uh, I actually got that call in like August or September 2020 and then went down there. 
it was canceled the last minute for COVID. I got rescheduled. And then, you know, sadly, Alex Trebek passed away. And there was all sorts of, you know, I got rescheduled a couple times. And then they were like, we're just putting you on hold until things are stable. And we know we won't have to keep, you know, jerking you around like this. So then it was another year of waiting after that for that to happen and wondering, like, you know, I told everybody I was going to be on Jeopardy. Do, do they think I was lying? Like, <laughs> I, I swear I'm really going to be on someday. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, finally, mid-September this year, they were finally like, okay, we're really doing it this time. Wow, life goals, 13 years later, right? Yeah. I have a question about that timeline, if that's okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm just going to give you, like, we're meeting each other for the very first time right now, and I'll just give you, like, a 10-second synopsis of me. I, I'm 53 years old. I'm a trans woman. I transitioned about 10 years ago-ish, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist now. I was living in San Francisco where I went to school. Now I live just outside of D.C. in Northern Virginia. So I've transitioned in my mid-40s. Mm-hmm. When you first started your process trying to get onto Jeopardy to be a contestant, mm-hmm. had you transitioned yet? Or was there a point where you were transitioning during your audition process? Uh, yeah. So, no, I I transitioned, like, you know, I sort of, in, in terms of, like, the, the, the final date of, you know, being fully public, I, I mark as uh, June 30th, 2017. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, for certainly for, for years, I had, I had not transitioned and was not, you know, I was, I was closeted to myself, you know, like I didn't, didn't know, um, for most of that time. And so, you know, when that did happen, I mean, I definitely kind of put that on hold for a few years Mm. while I was getting that all, you know, sorted out. Sure. So definitely like the, the first the first few times that that I that I was like even in in the active pool and everything that was that was pre-transition. Was there ever a point where you got into the pool pre-transition, or you did your test pre-transition, transitioned, and then got into the active pool as your authentic gender? <laughs> I no, there wasn't. I mean, I I might have actually now that I think about it, I think I was at the tail end of my time in the active pool around when I I started transitioning, but like kind of you know, suspected at that point that I probably hadn't made it. Like it was, you know, the last couple of months, just sort of coincidentally. And then, you know, I had other priorities for a while and, and didn't didn't try out again until, until I had fully transitioned. Mm. So this is a great segue just to mentioning that Amy is a transgender woman. And so that makes perfect sense for our audience. That's one of the reasons why I reached out to you because of how many transgender listeners that we have. And it was this perfect lineup of you saying yes to being on our show. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, what does that mean to you to stand up there at the Jeopardy podium as a transgender woman? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really kind of a, a you know a special part of all of this. It's, it's one of the things where you know all those years of trying, and I'm I'm so glad I didn't get on back before I transitioned, oh, yeah. uh, because I wouldn't have yeah. had this opportunity. You know, I'm I'm not the first trans woman to compete on Jeopardy, and you know, I, I, I at one point I was talking with the people at at, at Jeopardy, and they're like, you know, we don't actually know how many trans people have been on Jeopardy. And I was like, oh, I know, because I saw them. Of course you know. Yeah. And and so, you know, I know that what those people meant for me, seeing them on Jeopardy at a time, you know, when it was like, you know, there was a question in my mind, like, do I still want to be like in public and on national television, like as as a trans woman, that, that feels a bit more intimidating. Mm. Um, but having seen them do it definitely made that an easier decision. And so to be the first one now to have been this successful, I, I know that there are people out there seeing this and that it's it's meaning something to them uh, in the same way that those those previous contestants meant something to me. Um, and that's that's just a really good feeling. I have a question about that. Mm-hmm. In the as you know, in the trans movement in the twentieth, twentieth, and twenty first century, certainly there are particular people that kind of stand out as a touchstone or as an icon or as a role model. I don't want to put too much, you know, additional weight on your shoulders, but I think that you're falling into that slot now. What's that like for you? It's hard to say. I mean, it, it's it's something that like. So it's still happening as we're speaking. It's well, right. For one thing, it's still happening, and for another thing, it just sort of is. Those sort of people are sort of like, by definition, like not me. You know, they're sort of like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, to to say that that I'm one of those people, like it, it doesn't feel like it can be accurate. I do think that this is like a bit of a moment, a bit of a notable thing, and I think that's 
you know, wonderful. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I have struggled with a bit at times is that I have been in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, I transitioned in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. like in, in the late 2010s or whatever, and really have not had that much trouble, relatively speaking, compared to so many, so many trans people at different places and different times. And there's at times a bit of a feeling of like almost guilt about that, um, that like mm. I've just sort of gotten the the benefit of the sacrifice of others. And so it is really a good feeling to feel like, okay, I am, you know, paying some of that forward. I am benefiting those that will come after me as I was benefited by those that came before. We often use the phrase, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. No, I mean, because I just look at, you know, just people I, I know personally out here that transitioned in the early 90s, having to just, you know, order hormones via like shady mailing addresses and, and all these sorts of things. And I just am so grateful to them for for all this, all that they did to make my life possible. Yeah, because you know there's some kid out there that doesn't know they're trans, mm-hmm. that's watching you on that show, figuring out they're trans mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, she can do this. Yeah. She's doing this. I could do this. Yeah, absolutely. That's really awesome. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's something that, again, like, Moving out here, seeing trans people living and just, you know, not being drag queens and not being prostitutes and not being anything that I had to place my mind for, but just having a normal life and, you know, families and kids and all those sorts of things. Like, I would never have been able to conceive of myself as trans if I hadn't seen it in action. And so, yeah. Where'd you grow? If I can ask, if it's not too personal, where did you grow up? Uh, Dayton, Ohio. Okay, the Flyers. Yeah, indeed. And you said the Bay. I'm assuming you're saying that you're meaning San Francisco. Is yeah. there any other Bay? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there are a few, but yes, none as far as I'm concerned. It's same, same. Yeah, Kimberly knows a thing or two about San Francisco I area. Think, so I moved out there in 2016. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we probably were in San Francisco-ish right about the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Oakland, but yeah. Oh, then we definitely have brought, crossed paths <laughs> with some of the same. Okay, I I'm, I'm, I'm now feel like I'm one... Am I one step removed from Amy Schneider, 13-time Jeopardy champion? We could have well, been in the same air at some point, yeah. Yeah. I mean, plus the fact that all trans women know each other. So, I mean, there's that, too. That's so For true. Sure. Do you know? Of course. Do you know? That's funny. Well, then you know my friend Ebony Harper from Sacramento. <laughs> no, actually. Sorry. I, I'm disappointed now. Uh, there's still time. Gave it a try. We can make that. I'm sure we can make that connection. I'm sure we could, yeah. What are we not talking about so far that you wish we would? Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, I, I think that one of the things when, you know, you reached out to me and I, I heard about the concept of your podcast was I was like, oh, well, you know, as ex-Catholic, uh, I think mm. there's a lot of overlap there. Because growing up in Ohio, I didn't really know any any Mormons or ex-Mormons. So obviously moving out to California, I've met a lot more and I've always found that like, yeah, we can we can definitely generally vibe on that experience yeah. Well, I was raised evangelical, so oh, okay. you know, we we appeal to a, a wider group than just ex-Mormons. For sure, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's been an interesting facet in in sort of my, I mean, you know, particularly my transition journey and everything else. Not just that it was the 80s and I was in Ohio, but I was in a, you know, quite conservative Catholic community. Mm. So, you know, it's one of these things where it's like I never conceived of myself as, you know, quote, being a woman because it was like, well, I would like to be a woman, but I would not. And that doesn't seem odd to me because most of the things I would like to do, it appears I am not allowed to do. So, you know, this is just another thing that I apparently can't do for mysterious reasons. And I just kind of went along with it. Wow. That makes sense. At what point did you decide to stand up for yourself and make uh, your internal wishes Mm -hmm. come to reality? What kind of happened was that I moved out to California um, and, you know, actually got to know trans people. And then at that point, rather than it being something I couldn't do because uh, it was a sin or whatever, then to me it became something I couldn't do because they were the real trans people and I mm. was just like a wannabe or whatever. And it would be like insulting to them to sort of claim that identity. Did that hold you back for a while? It did. It did. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and it was, and, and, and I've told this story, it was the thing that kind of like started me going was I was in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream playing uh, <laughs> Francis Flute, who then has to play a woman in the play in the within the play at the end. And so I was putting a dress on every night. And just, I remember driving home one day on 880 and thinking, well, what if I just did that out in public? And what if I just introduced myself as, you know, I, I picked the name Jenny randomly at the time. And it's like, and I was like, oh, wow, what a great feeling that would be. You know, and even then it was a long time. I was like, well, okay, I guess I, I like cross-dressing. All right, that's a thing. And, and you know, doing that. And it was, that went on for, for years. And I mean, I think, you know, another factor at the time too was, was that I was married. And while my wife was supportive, I could sense that she didn't want to be married to a woman because she's straight. Mm. And that's, you know, totally fair. And it's okay that that was her, you know, thing. But so for for then, it also meant that if I were to really commit to that, it would probably mean the end of my marriage. And that was something that I, you know, at the time wasn't willing to to accept. Yeah. Then for other reasons, uh, the marriage kind of ended and that pressure was taken away. And, you know, it's funny, I had in my mind been like, then after that, there were a few months where I still wasn't sure, but I actually went back and looked at my journal entries and it was like the day she moved out, there's an entry of me being like, oh God, I can't be trans. This is too much. Or like having dreams mm. where I like was filling out an application form to be trans and like worried that I wouldn't be accepted and all that sort of thing. So yeah, the filter, the filtering committee, we're, we're pretty, selection committee is pretty rough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, not trans enough. No, not trans enough. Not tra- oh, she's she's trans enough. We'll, we'll put her through. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. easier to get on Jeopardy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So that was that was kind of the various things that that held me up for what thirty six years or so. Mm, that wow. story rings very true for me as well in almost mm, yeah. every regard. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was some of the hesitation just your upbringing with Catholicism? Is your is your family very religious? Yeah, yeah, they are. Sixteen years of Catholic school. Although I mean, the University of Dayton is nominally Catholic, but not particularly. Like I wasn't told not to be trans because that wasn't even a thing to think about telling me not to be. But sure, I was told that my body was not my own. That things that felt good to my body were bad, and just that things weren't up to me in that way. That feeling of something being wrong was, I was told, like, normal and natural and, like, Mm. you know, fine in the sense that it was something I should fight against. But, like, of course you feel like your body is wrong. It's the thing that sins. Like, yeah. The original sin in Catholicism, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck religion. This is the time of the podcast (laughs) when I'm like, fuck religion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That has to happen at least once per show, I think. (laughs) Do you think the fear of hell and eternal damnation and the judgment bar of God, did that keep you from determining for yourself who you were going to be? You know, I don't know that it did a lot. I mean, I think I had that when I was, you know, pretty young. I remember being, I don't know, let's say 10 years old, reading the Bible at, at night in my bed and coming across, like, if if your eye offends you, pluck out your eye and these sorts of things. And, like, getting really freaked out and going to my mom being like, it says if my eye wants to look at something bad, then I should rip it out. And she's like, they don't really mean that, like, this sort of thing. <laughs> and I'm like, well, then what's the point of this? Like, this is either the Bible or it isn't. What are we doing here, you know? So Yeah, why is it in there then? <laughs> yeah. So you were a literalist. You were quite, you were a liter- yeah. Bible literalist at that point in your life. I mean, I think, you know, I'm kind of a, a I have kind of a literalist mind, really, I think. So, like, I, you know, because c- Catholicism isn't biblically literalist as, like, doctrinally, but I, I just sort of was like, what's the point then if it's if it doesn't mean what it says? And and hell was something that from an early age I just struggled with philosophically. I was like, okay, so hell is eternal, but like God wins at the end, right? And if God mm. wins at the end, then there's not hell after that, right? So like it's not eternal. So, you know, that that was also something I really I couldn't get a handle on on the afterlife in a way that I could really feel like made sense to me. So you had a really lovely, nuanced view of spirituality and eternal uh, progression or 
uh, a narrative arc for yourself that really didn't include kind of the literalist things that you were reading in the scriptures. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. And I mean, it was just, I was raised to be very like curious and inquisitive and all these sorts of Mm. things. My mom was a college professor and she had been raised this way too. She had been raised in a very like waspy suburb in like the late 40s, early 50s, when there was still a decent amount of anti-Catholic prejudice. So one of the things that she was raised with was we have to be educated, we have to like classical music and Shakespeare and everything else so that they don't think that we're some idol-worshipping heathens. So (laughs) I had been raised with that, you know, sort of intellectual tradition, but then if I tried to apply it to what I was being taught in church, then all of a sudden it was not as welcome. <laughs> so that was always a, a contradiction that I that I saw that you know in in mm-hmm. what I was being taught. Yeah, they generally don't like free thinkers in religion. That's what I've found. You know, don't ask any questions. Just follow <laughs> what they're telling you. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I mean, I think you know it's it's interesting because there is certainly an intellectual tradition in Catholicism and Jesuits and, and and this sort of thing. It's always been interesting to me how that has coexisted all these centuries with things that, that can't be supported by that, that same intellectual tradition necessarily. Going to interrupt this conversation momentarily for a commercial break. Be right back. And we're back. What's your faith uh, or spirituality? How does it align today? What does it align closely with, or have you made your own? Yeah, I, I generally say that I'm atheist in the sense that I cannot believe that there is something that I could categorize as a person that is the ultimate decision maker for everything that happens, because that seems there's too much awful things for me to think that there's a person making it all happen. Beyond that, I'm definitely a questioner, I think. I'm I'm philosophical, and I recognize that there's a lot of questions. Like, fundamentally, the question of why is there something rather than nothing is not answerable <laughs> by humans. Like, it just cannot be answered. Like, either there's always been something which makes no sense, or something came from nothing which also makes no sense. Right. There is an unknown out there and always will be. I definitely like to sort of think about that and play with that and sort of relate to that. And, and relate to what is my place in this unknowable universe. Ooh, I'll take unknowable philosophical double binds for a thousand, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> pew, 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 daily double, daily double, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I'll bet it all. Sorry, I've been waiting all episode to do that. But that's exactly what you're talking about. It mm-hmm. is an unknowable philosophical double bind. Yeah, yeah. I will, in, a, in my, you know, sort of amateur way, like, you know, get into sort of like, Philosoph- you know, reading philosophical debates and, and writings and things like that. And, and, and then ultimately realizing that so much of it ultimately just comes down to they're just semantic arguments over what do words mean. And I think that that's really also where I, where I come down a lot. Like, if it is the case, as I think must be true, and, and this actually comes out of my being a, I, I, I'm a software engineer, I, I, you know, write computer programs. There's been a lot of theoretical work done that is like, there are problems that cannot be computed. You know, this goes back to Euler's like incompleteness theorem and your, or no, Girdle. Like you can't determine whether a program will ever stop or not. There's these things that literally can never be done by a computer. And I think that, that to me, that means there are things that literally can never be described by human language of any form. Interesting. And since all of science and reason has to be built on some sort of language and symbolic communication, that means there are some things that logic and reason can never touch that have to be found for yourself and experienced for yourself and, and never fully communicated to anyone else. So I think that's that's sort of my journey is finding those things that can only be found by yourself for yourself and finding those truths. I love this. I often talk yeah. about a language beyond words. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're speaking to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we don't have the tools to communicate everything mm-hmm. properly, always. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a great analogy that everyone is familiar with is dreams. You can never communicate a dream that you had to somebody else for them to really understand what it was because it's all these sensations and feelings and 
superimposed images on top of each other and abrupt shifts in time that don't feel abrupt. You know, all those things can never be communicated. They can only be experienced. So one time when I was in ninth grade, I had a dream that a girl in my class that I was friends with was in love with a dolphin. <laughs> and I, w- I had a crush on her in retrospect. So was I the dolphin in my dream? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's impossible for me to know. By the way, I have to tell, I have to tell a really cheesy dolphin joke right now. <laughs> Why are dolphins the most driven mammals in the ocean? I don't know. Because they swim with porpoise. <laughs> Sorry. I have all the dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they do, in a sense. Are dolphins and porpoises different? I'm not sure. I should look that up. It may come up on Jeopardy. Right. It might. I think they are slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to tell you both a joke about butter, but I'm just afraid you're going to go spreading it around. <laughs> <laughs> we have devolved into the corny jokes portion of the podcast. I'll take bad dad jokes for a thousand, please, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be a category. Yeah, right? that should be, actually. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> It's Ken, it's Ken now, at least for oh, the time okay. being. Uh, look, it's always right? Alex. <laughs> Speaking of Mormons, have you had the conversation with Ken about uh, Mormonism at all? I have not much. It's limited the amount that he's able to interact with the contestants, kind of just for like, you know, standards and practices, like avoiding any type sure. of collusion. So, you know, before the taping, he'll come out and chat with us for a bit and try to you know, set everybody at ease. And then there's that little chat at the end that while the credits are rolling. Um, but beyond that, there's there's not much of a chance to talk to him. But what I will say about him is that I have found all those chats with him have been delightful. He's just really mm. a great person, you know, more than I necessarily would have known. I mean, I didn't have anything particularly bad to think about him before. Um, but I also didn't know whether or not he would be a particularly good Jeopardy host. You know, it's, it's a different skill set. But I'm a big supporter of him. And I, you know, if I'm asked, I will say, yeah, like make him the, the permanent host. I think I think he's doing a great job. Now, if it ever came up that they asked you to be a Jeopardy host, would you do it? Uh, yeah, um, certainly uh, my supporters on Facebook are, are advocating for it. It's an interesting question. I, I will say that, like, the idea of moving to, to L.A. isn't one that I love. Mm. And it is a harder job than it looks on TV. I will say that as well. Like, every one of those clues has to be read clean. And if it's not, they have to go back and re-record it until it gets read clean. Everything that when he comes out of the beginning and says, da-da-da, like, last night's show, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. You know, that has to be clean, the little toss to commercial at each thing. And everybody has to stay there until you get it all done. So there's a lot of like weird pressure in that sense. So there's some endurance involved just to getting through the taping of the show. Absolutely. Which, you know, for the contestants as well, at least if you're if you're winning a bunch of games. What I would also say is for the amount of money I expect that would come with it. Yeah, I'd do it. (laughs) (laughs) What's the most important thing do you think you've learned about yourself through this whole process from 13 years ago till today? You know, one of the things I've learned, honestly, is that people generally like me. And that's Mm. something that I really found hard to believe for most of my life. Even though, you know, looking back, it's generally been true. Um, People generally seem to have had a favorable impression of me. I could never really believe it. I think, obviously, as I look back, a lot of that was that I knew that I was being so artificial in the sense that you know, whoever it was they said they liked wasn't me in any case. That's definitely yeah. been a part of it is now knowing that people who like me now actually do like, you know, the real me because I'm showing it to them. Beyond that, you know, years of therapy has also just helped with that a great deal. So, yeah, so that was a big part. And, and I think that was really crucial to have learned that before going on to the show because, you know, I'm being broadcast into millions of homes. And that was something that, you know, even as it was, was still kind of a stressful thing. But what went a long way to making me able to deal with that was saying, okay, Amy, you know that when you just go and you be yourself, people generally seem to like it. You don't have to, like, understand why or think that they should like it, like, you know, all this sort of thing, but they generally seem to. So, they will this time. Just go and just be who you are, and all your evidence has shown you that it'll be fine. And, and of course, that has turned out to be the case. That's some hardcore DBT skills right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good for you. 
And Kimberly, can you explain what that is one just quickly again for people who don't remember? A DBT is a modality uh, school of thought and therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. And what Amy's talking about is a skill that we call challenge the facts or check the facts, where uh, we look back at, at events that we have catastrophized that actually turned out okay, which gives us courage and uh, resolution to move forward with other things that might be hard or scary uh, that we're yet to face. Uh, you also are demonstrating another DBT skill we call uh, going with the flow, which mm. is just engaging with the system, engaging with whatever thing you're you're nervous about, and just seeing how it rides out. And come what may, uh, whatever uh, the outcome could be is okay with you. Yeah, which was the other thing, too. I mean, the other major thing I had to struggle with uh, in the sort of weeks leading up to the going into to tape the show was, you know, this is something I'd wanted my whole life. And there was certainly a possibility that I would go on, play one game, maybe not do particularly well, not win, and that would be it. And it would be over. And I wouldn't have Jeopardy to look forward to in my life anymore. And I would like feel like I had mm -hmm. failed at it and all this sort of thing. So, like, one of the big things I was focused on in my mind going into it was that would be okay. If that happens, that is fine, and I will be content. I will have had a fun time. I will have done my best, and I will be able, I will be able to live with that because otherwise it would have been paralyzing. Yeah. Another DBT skill called radical acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. She's modeling Latter-day Lesbian listeners. She is the epitome of dialectical behavior therapy. DBT model extraordinaire, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, congratulations to, to Kay Peterson, my therapist of the last nine or 10 years. So, yeah. To Kay. Well done, Kate. What did Kate teach you or what can you really pin on her as the thing that really has helped you the most? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Well, I think it, it has been that the main practice has been Checking myself against reality, I think, has mm -hmm. been the biggest thing of her saying, like, okay, this is what you're saying, this is what you're fantasizing, or whatever. Is that true? What would actually happen in this scenario? Has that happened before? You know, you, you say that this could never happen. What about all these times that it has happened and good things have happened to you? Did happen, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the big thing, has been to take those, like, parts of myself that are telling me such bad things and enabled me to see that as a part of myself and not myself and, like, reality and interrogate them. Yeah. Kind of externalizing the problem. Yeah. Externalizing the fears. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds like a great technique. So some of the things when you've been talking that register with me as maybe a little imposter syndrome mm -hmm. in different ways... Uh, one of them is, will they like me? I'm on this show mm. that's being broadcast into millions of households. Am I going to be liked? That was one mm -hmm. that I remembered. And one was, uh, here I am finally authentically being myself. People like me. And before, I guess they liked a version of me that wasn't actually me, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And now I'm finding that people actually like me for me. Did that play into you feeling like you were able to win on Jeopardy? Did that hold you back or did you feel like you had the skill set? I think that, I mean, the the thing that I could consistently get praised for in childhood was, you know, intellectual accomplishment. And it came naturally to me. I was just, you know, lucky in that way. I, you know, kind of just taught myself to read and just did well on tests and things like that. And that was something I was consistently rewarded for. And so, like, that was one area, as long as I wasn't trying to do anything real with it, that I could feel good about, like, that, that I could feel confident in. Like, I could feel confident mm -hmm. that, you know, I could go to bar trivia and do well and, like, you know, things like that, you know, knowing a lot of stuff, having read a lot of books. Like, that stuff felt legitimate. I mean, the thing that I've always, you know, struggled with out of that is that the idea that it matters that I'm good at any of that stuff. Because who cares, mm. right? That's partly because, you know, one thing that happens is that one of the reactions that I get from having, I got a perfect score on my SAT in high school. And one of the major reactions from my peers was kind of like hostility uh, towards that mm. and resentment. There is definitely a, a defensiveness that I, I think, you know, a lot of people, they feel that I must look down on them because I know things that they don't. Uh, which isn't true. Oh, wow. What a burden. Yeah. You know, occasionally. I mean, it's not like 
all the time people are feeling that way, but it is something I sense. And then that's that sure. then can be met with, you know, a sort of defensive resentment um, from that perceived, like, you know, superiority that I have. Right. So then my instinct, whenever I'm, you know, complimented on, you know, knowing a lot of stuff or, or, or things like that is to downplay it, is to say, I mean, a thing that I say all the time, which is true, is that to say that I'm smart, there is a particular dimension of smartness that I have, but it doesn't mean that I'm like socially intelligent. You know, I'm not any good at chess and I've tried to be. There's like all sorts of different types of smart that one can be, and I've only got one of them. So would you say that knowing stuff and being smart are two separate things? <laughs> I, I absolutely would say that. Okay. Yeah. Because that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. But what I would say, too, is like what I've lately been thinking about, like as this particular skill of mine has been become a national thing, mm. is that that's also incomplete in its way. I mean, I do feel like this is something that I am proud of and that I've worked at. And purely downplaying it and purely saying it well that it's it's not the only thing that's all true but it also goes to my the way i was raised that you know you're not important you're not good you're not special the sin of pride and all this sort of thing and so i i do try to check myself on that and and to like yes all those things i said are true and also yes i do know a lot of stuff, and I'm proud of that. It's a skill that I've developed and, and worked at, and I'm, I feel that I've done great. <laughs> well, I was going to say something about religion again, because what does religion teach us? None of our abilities are our own. Mm -hmm. They all are, you know, God or Gifts Heavenly Father. Above, right? Gifts yeah. from above. And Lord knows we can't take any credit for our abilities. We have to always be remembering to thank God for all the things, all the blessings, etc. Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank, just really quickly. Pride goeth before the fall. fall. Yeah. Yeah. I think I buzzed in on fall a little bit sooner than Amy. I just want to, I want to point. Yeah, you're too early. You're disqualified. DQ. <laughs> DQ. Yeah. And also, neither of you answered in the form of a question, so. <laughs> <laughs> what is fall, Kimberly? <laughs> what is fall? It's the season between summer and winter. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. No, it was a, it was actually, it was a thing I heard on Prairie Home Companion years and years ago that was just a throwaway line that was like, the Lutheran church, where our motto is, you're not that special. <laughs> and like, that's just always stuck with me. We're going to throw in one more commercial break and then wrap this conversation up. Be right back. We're back. This is a lovely conversation. Yeah. Um, thank you for the candor. I don't know, know that we're, I don't think we're done yet, but I am thoroughly enjoying this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, likewise. Me too. <laughs> What are we missing here? Yeah, so that's yeah. that's my where where do you want to go from here? This is really up to you. Whatever you want to do, Amy. Let's see. No, I mean I think you know kind of the, that whole piece about like knowing stuff versus intelligence was kind of like one of the the key things. I'm actually like trying. There's a thing I'm working on trying to kind of write that up because I think there's another aspect to that actually that I'll I'll carry on with, which is that I think that. The reason I know a lot of stuff is because I want to, and that when I learn some facts, I want to learn more about them and learn the story behind them. You know, I just genuinely enjoy, like, going on Wikipedia and kind of clicking around until I find something that I don't really know. And I think that a key ingredient to that is that I don't mind being wrong. Mm. In fact, I, I enjoy it. Like, you know, I was you know, at one point in my life, a conservative, Catholic, Republican, you know, boy. I now consider that I was wrong about all of those things. You know, I believed all that at the time, and so I have to assume that there are things I believe now that eventually I will decide I was wrong about, and that's fine and good. When you look back at your past self, you should think, boy, that I was stupid back then because otherwise you're just saying you haven't learned anything. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that openness to being wrong, that openness to, to changing your mind and learning, um, I think that's really the part that I'm proud of. Like the sort of like trivia knowledge that Jeopardy sort of quirkily rewards is like cool and I like it and it's fun, but the value in it is the openness to experience, the ability to change your worldview, the ability to adapt 
um, and to interrogate what you're being told. I think that's the value that it is. That's what's worthy of it in, in it. Interesting. It sounds to me like that's kind of the most important thing you know. Yeah, absolutely it is. I love that. What would your uh, answer be to the thought or the idea that you can develop smartness as a response to trauma? You know, I I do think that is a possibility. Certainly, the people I find myself gravitating towards, once we get to know each other, almost invariably, it turns out that there's some trauma in their past. There's a part of me that doesn't believe anyone has a healthy relationship with their parents, but I, I know that some people do. Point them out to me, because I have not met them. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just don't tend to be the people I end up hanging out with. You know, and I also think that my questioning... A lot of that, I think, has to come from, again, my, my trans identity, the things that I was told that I liked and didn't like as a child, I knew that wasn't true. And, you know, that, that didn't mean that I couldn't act on that knowledge in any way. But it gave me a natural skepticism for sort of just received wisdom that, like, I wasn't going to believe something just because people told it to me, because from an early age, they told me things that were were simply false. Mm -hmm. In most of those cases, not in any kind of malicious way. I just knew that what they were saying wasn't true. I knew that I, you know, I knew that I liked American Girl books, and I knew that I wanted to play with the girls, and I didn't want to go play with the boys and all these things, but I was told that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. So you were always questioning the premise. Yeah, Absolutely. And I imagine that you're a pretty big fan of the Socratic method as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, there's this thing of, like, just keep asking why. And eventually you'll get somewhere that you can't answer. But along the way, you'll, you know, learn some things. You'll answer a lot of really important questions. Yeah. I love uh, meeting and talking with other trans people about their journeys. Mm -hmm. And so often these early formative things about our awareness of our own identities is so common. Mm -hmm. These tiny little chunks of, well, wait a minute, I do identify with this or I am drawn to that. But these are things that are taboo. These are things that are off limits, but it doesn't matter to me. I don't care. I'm going to do them anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Although like I was very much a rule follower, so it didn't matter to me that they were taboo and off limits. Like, I was told I couldn't read American Girl doll books anymore, and so I stopped. But that didn't mean I was, like, okay with it. It just meant that, like, okay, the rules, the rules. And that, that again, is something that a religious, organized religious tradition gives you, is that you had to do a lot of things that don't make any particular sense. There's no reason you have to go to Mass on Sundays particularly, or, like, you know, that these five days are the holy days of obligation every year or whatever— you just do them. And so all those things about what I was allowed and not allowed to do as, quote, a boy just fit into that same category. They didn't have to give me a reason because they didn't give me a reason for a lot of other things. Just because. It's just because. Because. Yeah. Yeah. because. Religion's so great at that, isn't it? Just mm-hmm. making you do all this weird crap and you don't know why. What What is it for? This is the premise of Fiddler on the Roof, though. <laughs> this is literally the premise of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see certain values in it, and I certainly I can see why it sustains itself over the the millennia and all this sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's did not work for me one bit. Matchmaker, matchmaker, <laughs> make me a match. Is that what you're talking about, Kimberly? Where no, you're just... I'm talking about tradition. <laughs> tradition. That was a commonplace uh, among both my parents when I would be asking why about something and. They would just say tradition. There you go. Which meant that that was all the answer I was going to get on that one. Did they literally sing it in a bit of sarcastic humor? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that also, by the way, just like coincidentally, it reminded me that like uh, an example I give, one of my favorite um, Final Jeopardy clues uh, of recent years was uh, this Tony winning musical got its title from a Mark Chagall painting. And Mm. I use it as an example of one of the skills that I have with Jeopardy that isn't strictly knowing stuff, which is having watched Jeopardy and knowing how the writers think. So the the trail that they're giving you there is when they say Chagall, 
what they're always talking about is that he's Jewish, or occasionally that he's Russian-born or something like that. But almost always, Chagall is the Jewish painter on, on Jeopardy. Impressionist painter. Well, yeah, but they've got plenty of other Impressionists. Like, mm-hmm. like it might be a category of an Impressionist, and there'll be a clue that's essentially saying the Jewish one, although not said in those words, and that's, you know, that's what they're giving you. And so that's where you look at that you clue, you're saying, okay, Chagall, Jewish, musical, Jewish, Fiddler on the Roof. And then you can say, oh, yeah, I could see how that would be a painting. And there you have it, you know. Hmm. You know, because, like, my girlfriend, for example, never watched Jeopardy very much. So her watching it now, like, she's a smart woman. But she will often, like, look at it and not, she can't, it's not even clear to her what they're asking. And you'll see it on the show. People ring in and give, like, the title of a book when the clue was asking for the author or or things mm. like that. Just sort of being able to parse the weird syntax that goes into phrasing it as an answer and then as a question, like that weird syntax, like I've grown up with it. And so it's easy for me to sort of reverse engineer and see what's the actual question they're asking. But I think that's that's another key uh, skill that that isn't necessarily what people think of, which is just strictly knowing a bunch of facts. It's also like interpreting the clues and interpreting that, yeah. that sort of special language they have. Yeah, quickly in real time under pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. right. And how do you know what's a good amount to bet during uh, Final Jeopardy? Bet it all. Just bet it all. <laughs> um, you know, I don't. Uh, like, I, like, you know, <laughs> this whole time, one of my sort of like obsessive anxieties is that I will have enough to safely win and then like mess up the math and bet the wrong amount mm. and lose when I shouldn't have. So like I always bet at least a bit less than I had to to avoid that. Like, I always included a margin for error on the final Jeopardy. Um, and then in the in the daily doubles during the game, you know, I try to be fairly aggressive, but I'm on Reddit, and I'm definitely the, the consensus is that I've been too conservative with my wagering mm. on those. So I think I don't necessarily entirely agree. I think there's been sort of a revolution in Jeopardy wagering strategy since uh, James Holtzauer a few years ago. And I think that people have overlearned that lesson a little bit, uh, just because maximizing the amount of money you win in a game is not as important as maximizing the chance that you win the game. It's better to win with 20000 than to lose with 50000 But that said, I think they're probably right. I think I am a little too conservative. It's just really hard to bet the like theoretically correct amount when it's a lot of money and you're on stage and you have to like actually like bet it. It's it's tough. I'm sure it is. Here's my advice. Here's my advice. Having written many op-eds for the newspaper, having uh, many people come and comment on things I've read or said or spoken, <laughs> don't read the comments. <laughs> no, seriously, never read the comments. Well, I mean, I certainly don't for the most part. Like, Jeopardy strategy is something that kind of interests me, and there may be something I can learn in those specialized places. Um, But, I mean, certainly that is something I have had to uh, tell my girlfriend, and she hasn't necessarily been listening, um, but, like, in in articles about me, like, she has occasionally, like, ventured into the comments sections and been very upset. And I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't read the There's nothing for you there. yeah. Oh, tell us about your girlfriend, just a skosh, maybe. It might be kind of fun. Yeah, so uh, we met last summer. Her brother was dating my friend. Uh, My friend was over at my place, didn't have a car. I was on the phone with her boyfriend. And for some set of circumstances, I just heard her saying, oh, yeah, you can just come here and pick me up. And I was like, who did you just invite to my place? Um, And it was, you know, Genevieve. uh, And she came in. and Oh, I love that name. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know, we just kind of hit it off immediately. When quarantine started, I was living alone. Um, and so I, you know, there was about three months where I had, you know, did not touch another human being and this sort of thing. Uh, so right at the beginning of mm-hmm. it, I, I ordered a stuffed penguin um, named, named her Penny, and she was like my companion. So I introduced Genevieve to her that first time, and Genevieve treated her respectfully, so I felt like that was a good <laughs> sign. And then, like, we really quickly just became, like, really close friends. She was over basically every night. You know, she was living at her mom's house and didn't particularly enjoy that, but also just hanging out every night, sleeping over on weekends. But still, we were just friends. For one thing, uh, she believed herself to be straight at the time. 
Uh, after, <laughs> oh, yeah. sorry. Did I do that yeah. out loud? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we've all been there. Yeah. So that was a factor. Um, you know, there's there's a bit of an age difference. She's younger than me. And so, like, neither of us expected to be with someone that, you know, we both didn't fit our mental model of, of who we were going to be with. And it, it got to pretty absurd circumstances where we were, like, buying people joint Christmas presents and, like, all this sort of thing, uh, but still insisting that we were not a couple and just really good friends. Decided to take a trip up to Sonoma together. I remember my therapist saying, so you're going up to Sonoma with that girl you have a crush on? And I was like, what? <laughs> crush? No. What? Huh? <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, nature took its course, and uh, we we realized that we were, in fact, more than just friends. Um, and so that was back in February, a little over nine months ago. I love That's that. lovely. Yeah. And then, of course, being lesbians, she moved in with me the next day, and that was that. <laughs> so did you get a U-Haul? <laughs> she didn't have that much stuff, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, well, the fact is, we had actually started talking about her moving in before that. So, like, you could argue that it was, like, a negative amount of time after we started dating that she moved in. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. So I had a question about, you know, your newfound fame, mm-hmm. right? So now you've got probably a pretty big social media following, mm-hmm. et cetera. What do you want to do with your platform, this this new fame you have? That's a great question and one that I'm trying to figure out. I overheard one time when I was uh, there, Ken was doing an interview And he was talking about how, you know, he went on Jeopardy. He was just a programmer that didn't really know what he was, where he was going with his life. And now he's a professional X game show contestant. Oh, wow. What a category. What a profession. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, well, that certainly kind of describes where I'm at right now. Maybe this is uh, pointing me towards some, you know, new direction in my life, something that I can I can do out of this. I don't know what that might be, you know, specifically. Uh, There's. There's only one Jeopardy hosting job, and I, I think Ken's got that nailed down, and and rightly so. You know, it, it's kind of hard to say, but I mean, I think I'm trying to write some things as a sort of proof of concept for potentially like doing some kind of writing, writing some a book or something like that. Beyond that, I'm just trying to like be out there, be visible during this this time, and kind of see if somebody calls me up and says, here's an opportunity we think you'd like to, we'd, we'd like to try you out for. I love that. Yeah. And so we'll see what it is. And, you know, if, if it doesn't turn out that way and I just go back to my current career path, that's, that's fine. It's not the end of the world, but certainly this is not an opportunity I'm going to get again in my life to be on, I was looking it up, something like 9 million households a night uh, watching Jeopardy. Like wow. this is, this is once in a lifetime. So it's, I, I want to just put my best face out there and, and see what happens. You know, this is a, this is important to uh, emphasize maybe 9 million households each night. What percentage of those people are trans? Right. Mm-hmm. 1.5 to 1.7% of those people are transgender. So you're mm-hmm. reaching, I don't do math because I suck at math. <laughs> you're reaching a lot of people who are going mm-hmm. to find identities in common with you. Mm-hmm. Going back to that role model conversation, mm-hmm. that is that is no small accomplishment. Yeah. Well, I'll say, too, actually, I think the thing that sort of was surprising, I mean, in, in retrospect, it wasn't. But, you know, I, I've, I've definitely heard from, you know, trans people that have that have seen me and that has been meaningful to them. But actually, what I've heard more of is parents and grandparents of trans people because, you know, the Jeopardy audience skews very old. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. And I think, too, that I think, you know, because these are all people that are, you know, loving and supportive of their their trans uh, loved ones. But I think, you know, especially being from that older generation, I think what they are is just afraid for them, you know, and mm. afraid of what what their life might be like and afraid that them being trans has shut them out of, of opportunities and things like that. Mm. And so for them to see me succeeding in such a... <laughs> in such a like traditionally grandparent approved type of endeavor as Jeopardy, uh, I think has has meant a lot to them to see that these these possibilities are open to to their loved ones as well. Can I speak to the intergenerational component that you mm-hmm. just talked about? Yeah, I think this is also something that is important to recognize and to speak to. You are p- predominantly well. You're talked about this grandparent friendly uh, endeavor that you're on. Mm-hmm. Let's think about individuals. I'm 53. You're not quite as old as I am. Let's think about the people that are a generation older than us that may not have had an opportunity to transition. Mm -hmm. 
you most certainly are reaching those individuals who couldn't transition. Yeah. Who didn't have a chance to transition, who may be rooting for you in the sidelines in silence because they see in you something that they were never able to attain. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that. And that's that's a great point. You know, I I did hear from one, a woman who was like in her, her 70s and said that, you know, she had just transitioned like a few years ago which I think is is amazing. And it's also something, these are the stories I keep in my mind for the times when I'm filled with regret about the years I lost, to be like, you know what? It could have been later. I could have lost more. And so to, to be grateful for what I do have. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's, that's actually a, a really good point about those, those people being out there. And that's, that's something that's really lovely to think about. Have you heard from a lot of different members of the transgender community just cheering you on or that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, pretty much the just the same sort of support, you know, really happy you're out there supporting you. So excited, you know, this sort of thing. Um, But yeah, yeah, I definitely have. It's been it's been nice. So what happens when you have, you know, you're just your regular social media outlets, let's say before you're on TV. So you have Facebook or Twitter, whatever you're doing, then you're on TV Mm -hmm. for a bunch of shows do people find you and they send you friend requests or they start following you on Twitter, or Instagram or something? How does that work? Yeah, well, you know, Jeopardy advised everyone to make their their personal accounts private before their air date and to if if they wanted to to, to make dedicated um, ones for this purpose. Um, and so that's what I did. You know, I got the handle Jeopardy Amy on Twitter, which I was very pleased with um, and, and made a Facebook page and then sort of locked down everything else. And so that that kind of like, you know, funneled that over there. I mean, I still get a decent number of like requests for my other stuff that I'm just, you know, denying. I did actually have to make a, a Jeopardy specific Instagram, even though I don't post to it, just to try to shut off the flood of follow requests mm. on my private Instagram that I wasn't going to, to grant. My old accounts are like still there. They're locked down and, you know, whatever. I'll at some point sort of try to pick those back up. I feel like you know, my my actual friends on Facebook, I feel like are being neglected. Um, but uh, it's been really interesting. I mean, I just remember the first, the day the first episode was airing, like once it was kind of starting airing on the East Coast, I was actually driving over to my friend who got in an Airbnb for us to have a watch party with, you know, 10 or 12 people. And I had to turn off the notifications on Twitter on my phone because all of a sudden mm. it was just like mm-hmm. constant. Oh, and it was covering up my map <laughs> that I was using to navigate. Oh, that's mm-hmm. hilarious. Yeah. It's one thing to like, you know, get a little drunk and have an edible and like tweet something you think is funny to your 300, mm-hmm. you know, followers. It's another one. It's, you know, I checked this morning. It's something like 17,000. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time I tweet, like Newsweek makes an article about it that says Amy wow. Schneider reveals whatever it is I just tweeted. And I'm like, I didn't reveal that. I just said it. It wasn't a secret. <laughs> like um, your favorite wow. carbonara recipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, oh, man, this food is really good. And it's like Jeopardy champion Amy Schneider reveals that like Ooh, this type of food is champion good. Jeopardy champion Amy Schneider reveals the <laughs> optimal storage temperature for red wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. What is it? Do you know? I don't even know. No, I to don't diffuse, know. To diffuse or not to diffuse ah, with that wine. Is the That's the question. <laughs> so I was going to ask, though, if people, I don't know if you're accepting more, you know, followers or friends no, or whatever. Say no. Say no. Right? <laughs> but if people, if people either wanted to follow your progress on the show or just you in general, do you give out that sort of information for people to track you down? Yeah, no, I do have the the public pages that I I I'm more than welcome people to to follow. So yeah, as I said on on Twitter, it's it's Jeopardy. Facebook, the page is just my name. Um, and so if it's the one that's locked down, that's the one you can't connect with, and the one that's public, you can. Um, and and I I definitely invite you to do so. I've been before and after each of my games posting like kind of a long thread just about what I remember from the taping experience and little mm. things like, you know, just like, why did I, you know, why did I bet this amount on this daily double or, you know, what what I was kind of thinking during the games. And I, I've been doing that just because, like, I sort of did it for my first game and then I, like, just kind of kept going. But it's it's just the sort of stuff that I was always interested in about the Jeopardy experience that, you know, had had somebody been doing that, I would have certainly been been interested to read it. So I'm just, you know, whoever whoever out there has the same, you know, obsessive Jeopardy interest, like happy to happy to fill them in. I love, love that. it. 
So I think that we are probably pretty much wrapped up. We've hit our over an hour mark. Is there anything that anybody feels like we left out of this conversation? So I love interviewing people. I'm a therapist, so I do this every day. I meet people cold <laughs> and just do, do all the time. But when uh, Mary asked me to join you for the interview, I thought, you know, I don't want to research Amy. I don't want to do. I don't want to read. I don't want to watch. I don't want to. So I'm coming at this totally cold. So I've mm. really enjoyed. I just really enjoyed this. I just want to say thank you for allowing us to interview you. This has been fun. This has been. Thank you for having me. You know, I've done some interviews, but they've they've been like kind of with news organizations that are kind of like there's kind of a template they're trying to fill out, you know, and that sort of thing. So this has been the the most conversational uh, that, that I've had, and it's been really nice. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And, you know, keep us posted. Well, we'll you know, we'll follow you. Don't don't mm-hmm. ask her to do more yeah. work. She's got nope. plenty of stuff <laughs> nope. on her table. Not doing it. Not nope. doing we it. Can we'll follow, follow we can, you. Yeah, we'll follow you. And mm-hmm. keep up with your progress. Uh, best of luck continuing on Jeopardy. That's so exciting. Yeah, thanks. And we'll be watching. We'll be tuning in. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being a guest here today. We really, really Thank appreciate you, it. I'm Thank a big you. fan. You're welcome. It's been great. Last week, we announced that this episode today was supposed to be Fanny Fact Check, and we are postponing that till next week. So tune in a week from now to hear Sister Fanny Fact Check's Fact-checking, fact-tacular, I believe, is what that is called. So that's next week at the same time. Uh, Meanwhile, have a great week. Thank you, Dan, for leaving it in and all that you do. And remember, steer clear of cults because they are no joke. Talk to y'all later.